Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome back to episode two of Stop the Killing. Catherine, this episode we are looking at a very recent case from a town called Oxford in Michigan that has made headlines around the world for all the wrong reasons. Oh yeah, I'm so excited to be talking about this particular incident because it has so many interesting new topics to consider when we're looking for prevention opportunities, ones that we really have never talked about before. So what in particular made you choose this case? Because the shooting just happened um, a few months ago in November. But the shooter is alive. Parents are alive. That's going to become crazy relevant as we move on. But let me not get ahead of myself. It's a shooting in Oxford, Michigan, which is not far from Detroit, where I was born. So crazy. This is actually your old home turf. And we've also got two special voices joining us this episode. The first is your friend, Frank DeAngelis, who is the former principal of Columbine High School and a name, you know, that sadly doesn't need any introduction. But if you have been living under a rock, you can check out our episode on Columbine in season one. It's episode eight. And the second person that's joining us is actually your niece, Megan Catherine, who lives not too far away from where this shooting occurred. I think it's really easy to say, oh, that shooting occurred at that school, but it affects everybody in that neighborhood or that school district. Right then, let's start at the top. What can you tell us about this incident? So, as I mentioned, this is a shooting that occurred in Oxford, Michigan, which is north of Detroit. It took place just a few months ago, November 30th, 2021, at an international baccalaureate school. And so, shortly after lunch, a 15 year old student we see later from surveillance video, emerged from a boy's bathroom and began firing a weapon. At some point, an announcement went out over the school's intercom that there was an active shooter in the school. Some point very quickly. Everybody focused on clearing the hallways of the targets in the classrooms. They were all jumping into classrooms and they engaged these doorstop locks that had been installed four years prior that allow someone from inside of a classroom to push these door stoppers and lock the doors so that somebody can't get in. So these guys were ready, Mm. right? And it would be eight weeks before they returned to those rooms. But at that moment, 
They cleared the hallways. The shooter continued to pull triggers. He's pointing at both students and a teacher. Uh, They blocked the doors. He attempted to fire into the doors that he couldn't get through. And so like many other people in these kinds of shootings, I remember uh, reading about a a social studies teacher, Joe Federinchik, and students barricaded their doors, right? The teachers would hear like five shots and then another four shots. Students were texting each other in real time to see whether they knew where each other was located. This is such a tight community that there are teachers who are married to each other that work there that have their kids in the schools. Oh, my um, so they are doing real-time texting back and forth to see whether or not they can track each other. And there are crazy things that are going on, heroes, you know, right from the very start. A young lady pulls another student who's been injured into a classroom and starts holding uh, down uh, to stop the bleeding to save her life. Can I just say how much more prepared this school is than any other school shooting we've covered so far? That's what's striking me initially. Yes, thank you for saying that. You know, the last episode we talked about the Texas Tower shooting mm. and how things had changed. And it was really hard for me to even say how dramatically things have changed. When you hear how the people responded mm. at this school, this is how dramatically things have changed that somebody who is less than 100 pounds or so could pull another person from a hallway who had been shot and help to keep her alive by applying pressure to a bleeding wound, just like you might have to do if somebody falls at your house, Mm -hmm. if you're in a car accident, the ability to stop somebody from bleeding out is what saves lives. But I will tell you, even though the shooting took five minutes and the shooter shot about 30 rounds, in those 30 rounds, Four people were killed and seven were wounded. Mm. It took, you know, probably that first four or five minutes for law enforcement to really get there to get inside the school. And when they did get inside the school, the boy handed his gun over to the law enforcement officers. He still had rounds in the gun. Hold on. So he just handed it over. There was no shootout, no confrontation. How did that all play out? They went in, they confronted him. He handed his gun over. There were seven rounds still inside the uh, handgun. He still had other unspent ammunition. So when you think about why somebody does something and and what it takes to stop somebody from shooting, in that case, the fact that law enforcement arrived and confronted him, mm. that made him stop shooting. Uh, sometimes we see shooting stop because a shooter hears sirens, right? So in this case, law enforcement arrived, shooter stopped shooting, handed his gun over and was arrested. You know, Catherine, one of the other things that's jumping out at me about this case so far is I'm reminded of episode seven we did in season one, which was on the Virginia Tech shooting. And in it, there was that horrific sacrifice made by one of the professors and his students. They actually physically held the doors shut of a classroom to stop the perpetrator getting in. But here at Oxford, not only are people more prepared by knowing stop the bleed, but Actually, the building seems to be more prepared and ready for an assault with those lockable doors. However, there were still four fatalities. So what can you tell me about the victims? Yeah, there were three students that were killed at the scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, A 17-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 14-year-old, Madison, Tate, and Hannah. There were eight others injured, and there was a teacher injured. There was another student who died the next day, Justin Schilling. It's horrific that we have these deaths and these injuries. And as well prepared as they seem to be, four kids still died. 
Yeah. Right. And eight others were injured, mm-hmm. including a teacher. I want to tell you a couple of other factors when you talk about preparation. Little things that people might not recognize how valuable it is to have these little plans in place. Mm-hmm. So these kids evacuated on foot or by school bus per plan, right? To a local grocer about a mile away. The name of the grocer is Meyer. It's a big company in, in mm-hmm. Michigan. And the school's band director, his name is Jim Gibbons. He was home that day. His wife was at school. He has kids at school, but he had kid at home because they were on a COVID protocol. So after he found out the safety of his own family, he went to the evacuation site, to the Meyer grocer. And how do you find 1,800 students in the school who, when a shooting occurs in the middle of the afternoon, evacuate to a local grocer? And it's a great big building, but then how do you quickly account for the kids? They had Meyer announce that they wanted all students to go to the garden center and find their fifth period teacher. Oh my gosh. I I just love that. I love that. So immediately all the teachers were able to find their students and return them to parents very quickly, which I think was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, you notice the difference between other cases that we've covered when parents are left sometimes for hours and hours, not knowing what's actually happening to their children. So Definitely impressive to get 1,800 kids back to their, I mean, no doubt, beside themselves parents as quickly as possible. Yeah, definitely. You know, when the Sandy Hook shooting occurred in December 2012, Mm. 10 years earlier almost, Mm. in Sandy Hook, in some cases, the parents of the children who actually were deceased waited, in most cases, three hours to have a confirmation. Three hours they sat and waited. Right. I think that's something that we've learned in the world of victim services is it's not just a question of confirming that a child is dead. It's a question of confirming any information, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I think limbo land is a hard place to be in, in any mm-hmm. situation. Definitely. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Maybe you just lost it. Well, stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. 
Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. When you think about planning and preparation and proper training, when law enforcement reviewed the surveillance video after the shooting, they estimated that it took 10 seconds to clear the hallways of the school once the shooting started. That is so incredibly quick. Do you attribute that to run, hide, fight training that they actually had in Oxford School? I do. That's planning and preparation because you've trained for it. Mm. The teachers knew exactly what to do. The students knew exactly what to do. Mm. It's not rocket science. It's just training where you can go, what's the safest places in your location, whether it's in your school or your business, you're going to be able to keep yourself safe because the shootings sometimes last a minute or two or seconds. Mm. And all you need is that time to keep yourself safe. Mm. And when they cleared that hallway in 10 seconds, think of how many kids didn't get shot, how many teachers didn't get shot because Mm. they cleared the hallway. Incredible. You know, and I got to tell you, Sarah, I couldn't think of anybody more qualified than Frank DeAngelis to talk to us Mm. about how far we have come in training, leaps and bounds in terms of from when he was the principal at Columbine High School, to where things are now and what we saw happen at Oxford High School. Well, firstly, thanks so much for joining us, Frank. I want to start with asking you how you see changes uh, to schools preparedness since Columbine. I tell people this, I'm going to take you back memory lane to 1999. The only drills we did at Columbine were fire drills. And now you look at all the different drills with run, hide and fight. You look at the standard response protocol. These kids are trained. I can remember when my granddaughter started kindergarten and I was volunteering and the first week of school, they do an evacuation drill. These kids from the time they're in elementary school all the way up are trained and I think it was when they had the situation at the Capitol on January 6th, there were legislators who actually knew what to do because of training they had been through either in college or school. So that training, you know, it does help. I know there's obviously a lot of discussions about training elementary school kids and there's discussions about whether that's okay. But a lot of the pushback from even businesses and training comes with actually the name. It's active shooter training. It's shooting training. Would we be better to brand all of the training as just safety training? See, I think that's ideal. And here's the reason. When parents come to me and out and they said, oh, my gosh, we're going to scare our kids. And I said, "Okay, time out for a second. I have my granddaughter. You're going to hold Papa's hand crossing the street. Is that terrorizing her? Now, I'll share a story. I was getting ready to present and I can't I think it was in Ohio and they were going to do an active shooter training for the staff. And they didn't tell me exactly what was going on, but I'm sitting there witnessing it. All of a sudden, they have police officers coming in, firing blanks, and then they had kids from the play actually falling down with blood coming out. I just saw the reaction on the teachers' faces, and and they said, Frank, what do you think? And I said, I got to tell you, I've been around a lot of this. This affected me. And I am having a hard time. And I said, there's ways to train. Here's an example. If you're doing a fire drill, you're not going to set a building on fire. And I think it's how you address the training. And the training for elementary is going to be different 
for the training for middle and high school and colleges. Hey, so Frank, do you think kids should be taught, elementary school kids? I do. I think it's the training. For example, if a bad person comes in the building, this is what we're going to do. It's how you tell the story. You're not going to say, oh, well, if there's a gunman out here that's shooting and killing people, this is what you got to do. That's going to freak, well, it's going to freak out even high school people. And I don't know where you stand in arming teachers. I struggle with that. And I'll use myself as an example. That day, if I was armed and I encountered that gunman, what I would have done, I looked at that person as one of my kids. I would have went down and tried to talk to him saying, what are you doing? There's got to be a better place. Well, if I do that, he kills me. I just endangered all those kids I was trying to protect. I could go out and take every class for firing a weapon, but I don't know if I have the mental state of mind to be able to pull the trigger, especially on one of my students. And when you come in and start looking at that's one of my students, you're probably not going to be able to pull that trigger. And I think you hit the nail on the head in terms of the kind of things that I would worry about. I mean, I'm trained and highly skilled in the use of a weapon. And if I was in a school where I knew every single child and every face, I can't imagine being able to pull that gun out and shoot somebody as yeah. easily as I could an anonymous person. And then I look at it from this standpoint. So if I would have played that out and trying to talk to him, and all of a sudden he shoots me, now I just endangered those 25 girls as opposed to drop the weapon and I fire. I don't know if I could have done that. What should principals be saying to students and what should principals be saying to parents in those first couple weeks? Yeah, it was real tough. And for us, we, and very similar to what happened in Oxford, they could not go back in the building or they did not go back in the building and we could not. And we were towards uh, the end of the semester. So we still had a month left and we knew we had to finish the school year. And originally there was conversation about putting the freshman at one school, the sophomore. I said, no, we need to be together. So luckily Chatfield High School, which was one of our sister schools, you know, they opened their doors, but more importantly, they opened their hearts to us. And they allowed us to go in the afternoon and they went in the morning. But one of the things that I had to do was talk to our superintendent, school board member or school board president, because we had 13 memorial services that our students and staff had to attend. And I said, the last thing we needed was to go to this service and then try to teach them math and science. So we waited for two weeks. And so I think the biggest question I think so many of the parents have is when they have their kids return, when staff members return, is the school safe? You know, because of what they experience and what are you going to do to protect our kids? And one of the things that I learned and this is a fine line, when you have all these additional security measures taking place, and I truly believe when we returned to Columbine High School, we were the safest school in the world. We had more security guards, we had more cameras, and things of that nature. And what was a wake-up call for me is some students came in and they said, Mr. D, I know you love us, I know you want to keep us safe, but with all this extra security, this is no longer like a school. And we're getting more anxious now by seeing this saying, maybe we should be worried. And that was a wake up call. How do you return to school and still make it an, uh, a learning environment, but protect the safety of the kids? And a lot of times what I learned is what the parents wanted 
and adults want it is different than the kids. And so one of the things I try to do is get input from all parties and things of that nature. And Frank, what do you think the parents want? They want safety. They want security. But it's little things that can make a big difference. For example, if there were any helicopters that flew over the Columbine area, that was a trigger that traumatized people. I had to change the sound of the fire alarm. I can remember over summer break listening to different sounds for three or four hours to make sure it was different. We could not serve Chinese food at Columbine because that was a meal the kids were eating when the gunmans entered the building. These were things that would traumatize people, the kids, the staff. The teachers had to change the manner in which they were teaching. I mean, I was a social studies teacher, and there were times we'd show World War I or World War II films. Well, if there was any sound of gunfire, these kids would be re-traumatized. Talking about a learning lesson, things you don't think about when you go to principal school, but our parents, when they decided that our kids were going to return back in a couple of weeks, back in May, they decided to put up an archway of blue and silver balloons. Great idea until the balloons started popping. And all of a sudden you see these kids diving on the ground. And so all these things that we had to worry about. And what I tell people, they said, Frank, what advice could you give? And I, and the thing that I learned, the class that I worried the most about was the class of 1999 because they were there for a month. And then they were they graduated and they were off on their own. And all of a sudden they're at college. They're starting their careers and something happens and they don't have that support system. And so one of the things that I tell them, it was tough for all of us at return, but we had each other. We just had a shooting up at Oxford uh, High School, as you know. Different charges and different circumstances, parental activity and things like that, but no different in some ways. Are, Are all of these in some ways the same, no matter what the circumstances are about what brings a shooter to the school? Well, you bring up a key point because I think people in their minds, number one, they feel if we don't talk about it, it's not going to happen here. Or there is these certain parameters or demographics. And I'm telling if you would have told me that a Columbine could have happened at Columbine, I would have said no way. It was one of the top schools in the state. And one of the things when I talk to these principals or superintendents, they said, we can't believe it happened here. You know, what should principals be saying to students and what should principals be saying to parents in those first couple of weeks? So when I returned to Columbine, I remember walking in right after 4th of July and I was in that building. Well, there was major reconstruction going on because we were hoping to open the school in time for the new school year. Well, there are things being dropped, loud sound, and I can remember walking in there and running out. And when I walked out of my office, there were times I'd walk down that hallway and I'd have flashbacks to that gunman coming toward. And Kate, you and I, I walked you through that when you were at Columbine. And I called my counselor and I said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. And he said, Frank, we're going to try something. He said, we're going to replay what you're thinking right now. And I said, okay, help me. He said, tell me about Lauren Townsend. I said, oh, gosh, I knew her from the time she was growing up. Her mom was a coach and she played volleyball. And gosh, uh, she'd come by and she had a smile. 
Okay, tell me about Isaiah Schultz. Oh, I'd see him every day down on the landing. So it went through that with all of the kids. And all of a sudden he said, Frank, if you're going to continue to be principal at this school, you need to change that mindset. Because when you walk in and you see what you witness, you're not going to be able to work here. And so it's kind of like when you go to a memorial service for people, it's about celebrating their life and not mourning their death. And, it, and that was one of the things that I passed on to the kids and others that I think was so important. So, Frank, let me ask you, many things have changed to make schools more prepared since Columbine. I mean, you can just take run, hide, fight, for example. But do you think that we can do more to prevent shootings happening in the future? What we can't underestimate is the power that individuals could have in stopping these school shootings. Frank, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that, how many of the two killers' close friends were in the building during lunch hour? And I'm not saying that they knew, but if they said something that, hey, you may not want to be at school tomorrow. Why? Just trust me, you don't want to be there. And I think especially now with social media, there are warning signs in most cases that things are being posted. And if they could err on the side of caution, if they see something, say something to let them know that they can protect. I can remember and I think it was in Maryland, this father walked into the room of his daughter and she was planning a Columbine. And he turned her in and he got vilified. How could you do that? How could you do that? I, I applauded the father. I said, do you realize he saved her life and how many others? And I think if we hear about these things, you need to let people know. Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Ohio is a land of mystery. From missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies. From myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com Well, unlike you, Catherine, I'd not met Frank DeAngelis prior to our interview. And what an absolutely wonderful human being he is. The actual interview that we did ran almost to two hours long. So I will be putting that up onto the Patreon page if you want to hear more. Do become a Patreon member of the show and check it out at patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. I mean, 
his recounting of that day in Columbine, ugh, it's it's mind blowing. And all I can say, Frank is one of life's good guys. Go check it out. And there'll be a link in the show notes to the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Now, let me introduce you to Megan, who is not only Catherine's niece, but also part of that wider community impacted by today's case in Oxford. Megan, you live not too far from Oxford. Correct. I wondered, Mm -hmm. did you talk to your kids about the Oxford shooting? I did. My 11-year-old and my 8-year-old pretty openly about it at their level. But yeah, we're about 30 minutes or so from Oxford. And Friends of ours who go to school with the kids have family members who were lost there. My 11 and my 8-year-old, they ironically had a lockdown drill that same day. So some of the teachers had known about it. We talked about if there's a bad person that tries to get into the school, what are the things that you do? And my kids know about run, hide, fight. What do you want other parents to do? I want other parents to foster kindness over competition. And I really think that's how, if we are aware of that little kid on the bench who is by himself every day, and we're teaching our children to include him, maybe it's a two-minute interaction that makes a difference. A smile is free, but it really can turn somebody else's day around. I will say our parents listening might say, oh, a smile at somebody on a bench doesn't matter. But I can tell you, I recall a school shooter who said that when he entered to shoot up the school that day, and he got a positive reaction from the faculty member standing at the door who said good morning to him and told him to have a good Mm day. And the shooter specifically said, I decided that was not the day. Wow. Probably one of the most common questions that I get is, should we be training children? How how would you answer that, Megan, for a parent? I think we have to start talking to them so that it becomes normal for them. It is a reality of the world that they live in, no different than internet safety. All of my kids take internet safety training at school also a different kind of threat. I think we really do have to train them so that it becomes that muscle memory so that they instinctively know what to do. And, you know, in watching the the social media videos of Oxford, the kids did what they were supposed to do, right? They were throwing staplers and books and things like that, which is a level of training that my kids have not gotten to. But I think it's not age appropriate for an eight, 11 and a four year old either. So I think we do need to train them. Absolutely to an age-appropriate level. So even though we've changed the podcast up with some guests this season, we will still be making time to talk about the killer's background each episode because it's so important to recognize those moments along the pathway to violence. Right. This kid was just the kid arguing over why the cereal box was empty a week earlier, right? right? And sitting next to somebody else in science class and complaining about not wanting to dissect a frog. So let me tell you about this shooter. This killer is a 15-year-old boy who was a student at the school. He came into the school with a 9mm semi-automatic handgun. But here's the rest of the story. The day of the shooting, which was a Tuesday, there was a teacher who had photographed a drawing on paper that was found on this student's desk. The student was in his second year. He was a sophomore. And he had made a drawing that had drawings of somebody with a gun in their hand, shooting at somebody else and saying things like, I want to die. And so the parents were brought to the counselor's office. They talked for a while. The school counselor said, your child needs counseling. 
But the boy is also called to the counselor's office. He had his backpack with him. And he produces a note that he's made some alterations to. And he says he's just joking and it doesn't mean anything. And so now the counselor's in a spot. And I'm not going to second guess what the counselor did at this point. This case is still pending. But the counselor is the one who's engaged. And the parents agree to get the boy some mental health counseling. So the parents leave the school. And the boy goes back to class. And just before that occurs, they suggest that the boy maybe should should go home. And I think the parents were both working. And the parents said, no, according to the school, they were pretty insistent that the boy remain in school. So the boy remains in school and the parents go away. And about half an hour later, the boy comes out of the bathroom firing at people. Do they know what happened in that half an hour between? He was just there and he was in school and he went to his class and then he went out and went to the boys' bathroom and he came out of the bathroom firing. It all seems to have happened in quite a short space of time. And the thing that really surprises me is actually how quickly the school manages to get the parents on site. It did happen really fast. And the, one of the reasons it happened really fast is that the day before the parents had been called. Right. Because the day before the child had been seen searching for ammunition on his phone in a class. And again, amazing. Somebody's picked that up and reported it. Yeah, they reported it. They called the parents and they got no return phone call from the parents. So let me just give you this little extra background that I think is jaw dropping. We find out the day of the shooting that the 15 year old boy and his father had gone to a gun shop to buy the gun on that Friday before the shooting. Shooting was on a Tuesday. On Monday, a teacher saw him searching for ammunition purchases, Mm. reported it. They called the parents and the parents didn't call back. So if you're going backwards, that Friday was a Black Friday sale because this was in November, right? So it was the day after Thanksgiving. So the boy posted a picture of himself that day with the gun, but then his mother posted the next day and said that they had bought him his new Christmas present. Oh my gosh. What kind of stocking filler is that? I've literally got chills. And I mean, and to top it all off, she's actually said it online out loud that she's bought a gun for a minor. Yes. Yes. And she went with him to a range and and shot with him and then was bragging about it online and saying that they were, she bought him his new Christmas presents and they were practicing target shooting. I'm flabbergasted at that. Well, I see the video footage of them in the range. So this would have been Saturday, Sunday. The shooting was on a Tuesday. That's all over social media. Did anyone react to that? It's early in terms of the reporting, right? And the prosecutor's office is still working on things and it'll be interesting to see how that comes together. But we do know that the boy by Monday was searching online and a teacher saw his searching online for ammunition and reported the behavior. Here's something else the prosecutor's office learned. Remember I told you that the boy had been searching online for ammunition on Monday. A teacher Mm. had reported the behavior. The counseling office had called the parents to report it and say they want to talk to them. The parents didn't call the school back, but we know from phone records that the mother texted her son and said, lol, L-O-L, laugh out loud, right? Lol, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. (gasps) Oh my God. At what point was that? Monday night. The shooting was Tuesday at about one in the afternoon. That was Monday evening. 
So she's saying that about him Googling for ammunition. That's what she's referring to in that. Right. Don't get caught Googling ammunition. Yeah, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn not to get caught. Wow. Wow. These are chilling, chilling details. Oh, my. These are chilling details about what is your job as a parent? How much are you going to be their friend and how much are you going to be their parent? And again, I think that you want to say, I would never do that. But you know, I'm going to tell you as a prosecutor, parents always think the best of their kids. Mm. And they say, my kid would never have done that. And there are thousands of people in jail who murdered, who Mm. only murdered once. So they weren't a murderer until they did it. Yeah. I'm still just kind of flabbergasted by the whole situation. Right. It's a question of responsibility. Mm. Here in the United States, yes, we have more guns and you give them a gun as a Christmas present. That's actually a violation of federal law. Right. As it should be. That makes complete sense. However, what I am struggling to make sense of is the parents in this situation. Can you color in any more details about them? You know, the parents are just your kind of regular working parents, right? I think what's more extraordinary is the fact that the kid talked him into letting him buy this gun. He was all excited about it. We know now that he, he made two recordings prior to that indicating he was going to do this. This was on his radar. He was doing some writings. There was some planning to do this. And then the parents, I'm sure their answer to it now is probably going to be that they had no idea at mm. all. Mm. But think about the carelessness of knowing that he searched ammunition and then saying, don't get caught. And then I told you Mm. they left him at the school. But I will tell you that about half an hour after the shooting occurred, it was all over the news in Detroit. Mm. And as the media was reporting on it, the mom texted her son and said, don't do it. Oh, my God. What did she know that she would say, don't do it? Wow. This was after he'd already done it. Right. They had been there and less than an hour before. It's not something you say. Why wouldn't she have texted him and said, are you safe? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Don't do it is a sign of culpability. Mm-hmm. Any other parent in the world would have texted their child and said, are you okay? Are you safe? Exactly. She didn't. Right. We don't know what was obviously in her mind at that time. But we do know that while she was texting her son, her husband was driving back to his house to see if the handgun was there that they had just purchased. And presumably the father was actually supposed to be going back to work because, I mean, you just said earlier that the parents were insistent that the child couldn't come home with them. So are we drawing a line to the fact that he was so concerned that the gun might be with the child already that he decided to go straight home and and search for it? Right, exactly. Right. He went home. The handgun was not where he thought it was supposed to be. He called the police and he said, the handgun's missing that my child has. Oh, I was not expecting him to have rung the police. But it's too little too late now because the shooting's already happened, hasn't it? Right, exactly. Such different responses that both the parents have, which I think is really interesting. The dad, you know, he's gone and taken action. And the mother saying, don't do it. I mean, how chilling. How chilling. And then on top of that, it's also chilling to think that the boy was sitting in the counsellor's office only a short time beforehand with, I presume, the gun in his backpack, whilst the parents, who know he has access to a weapon, 
are sitting right beside him. You know, one of the things that I think I'd like to be able to do is I'd like to be able to have the time to share with our audience the details of this. So da, da, da. I'd like to continue <laughs> this till next week, uh, because I think there's so much. But I would like to leave you with this thought about it. The boy, 15 years old, was charged with 24 separate criminal charges. Of course, four counts of first degree murder, seven counts of assault with intent to murder for the people who are injured, 12 counts of possession of a firearm in the commission of a felony, because there's a bunch of different ways you can do that. Legal speak there. But exactly. That's speaking German to me then. That's why we're going to talk about this next week and committing an act of terrorism. Think about terrorism. What is terrorism? It's an intent to intimidate and coerce. We've not seen terrorism charges on any of the other school shootings that we've done, have we? And well, actually, in fact, I don't think we've seen terrorism charges on any of the cases that we've done. Anyone? We have not. Okay. That's why I want to talk about this. Well, I guess in that case, join us next week for part two of the Oxford School shooting. Until then, stay safe. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. The world of 911 emergency dispatching is brutally diverse. One minute you can be talking with someone about parking violations. Uh, what's the process we are to take to have people towed? Because it's actually delaying the mail. And then all hell can break loose. Then the rest of the day is crazy. We could have murders. Hill County 911, once your emergency. I just killed my children. Home invasions. He's in my house. He's in my house. I shot him. You shot him? He was coming up towards me and I shot him. Natural disasters. Tornado came through the goddess. I'm buried under a bunch of robbery Even bombings. Okay, 
my show, Music City 911, will put you in the dispatcher's chair, put you ear to ear with the callers and responders, and keep you on edge from start to finish. I hope to both educate and entertain, as I'm a 911 dispatcher with over 20 years' experience. And just like dispatching, every episode is different from the last. Music City 911. Real 911 calls, real 911 dispatchers. Available to listen to on any podcast app. Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who have overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. It is from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave. <laughs> 